Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Open up a Bible, if you will, to John the fourth chapter. John chapter four. That's where we're going to begin Q and A night in just a moment. Our Bibles fired up and ready to go. We'll be working in them uh, extensively as we get ready to think about uh, your questions from the Word of God. If you've never been here for Q and A night before, uh, it's not going to take you very long to figure out what's going on here and how all this works. Once a month, I uh, compile some questions that I have received. Uh, not necessarily from the last month. In fact, sometimes it's a year, year and a half. Ask Mike Spillman. He'll tell you I didn't get to one of his till like a couple years after the fact. But eventually we do get around to them once I kind of have worked through them and had an opportunity to kind of group some uh, together. But questions that have been submitted to me either by our members here or uh, by our kids sometimes, sometimes even by folks outside of this congregation. And I do my best to kind of study those things and try to just provide some very clear Bible answers. And these are not simple just yes or no questions that merit just a yes or no kind of response. Uh, instead, we try to consider these things from as many different angles as possible and try to just really get some practice at using our Bibles and getting uh, getting related to the Word of God and recognizing that it's our primary tool whenever we do have Bible questions. This evening I'm going to be working with only two questions, uh, both of which relate to God, to things that pertain to His character and His nature and what He's all about. We talked this morning already about some of the attributes of uh, who make, what makes God who He is, and tonight we're going to consider maybe some different attributes of God. Maybe that's the best way to say that, but glad that you're here tonight. Hope you've had a good afternoon. It's been a good day, and it's good that we're able to be here together tonight. I appreciate the fact, those of you that are here, that you did not choose to go travel all over the countryside like all of everybody else chose to do uh, this particular uh, holiday weekend, but I'm glad that you're here and glad that we have these few moments to spend some time in the Scriptures together. In John chapter 4, I am reading here the words of Jesus. These are very familiar words to us, hopefully. In fact, they were on the screen just a few minutes ago. In John chapter 4, this is verse 24, where Jesus says there, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to use that verse in just a moment to answer a question about gender. We live in a time when there are just lots of questions about the issues surrounding gender, and a question has come up about the gender of the Lord. And it's simply this, what is God's gender? That question actually came out of my Sunday morning Bible class. I teach the third, fourth, and fifth grade class on Sunday mornings. And we were studying in the book of Acts about the various gods and goddesses that would have been prevalent in first century times, particularly in that Roman world. And specifically, we were in Acts the 19th chapter talking about what was going on in the city of Ephesus. And there was there this great goddess, if you will, Diana or Artemis, depending upon your particular translation. And that idea of there being a female deity, and I'm putting that in quotations because I do not believe that Diana is an actual deity, but the idea of a female God, that then provokes some thought and a little bit of discussion in class. And I think maybe even the kids were even looking for just a little bit of affirmation here because it got them to then think about about God, about the true and living God, and what about God's gender? And I want you to know that this is actually a very good question for us to consider. Because here in 2018, fixing to be 2019, there seems to be a push in our culture to be more inclusive. And some people seem to think 
that the idea of using male pronouns in reference to the Lord, well, that's just downright offensive. For example, you may not know this, but there are actually translations of the Bible, like the egalitarian inclusive Bible, that removes all references to God as Him or He or Father, and instead it uses gender neutral terms. John 3.16, would you like to know how that verse is rendered? In that Bible, John 3.16 reads like this, For God so loved the world that God gave God's only child so that everyone who believes in that child may not perish but have eternal life. There you go. That's where all of this kind of gender redefinition, where all of that kind of stuff eventually leads to. And that's not the only example of this kind of confusion in our world today. What about that best-selling book, The Shack, which was later made into a motion picture? That book, I don't know if you've read it or if you've seen the movie, but that book portrays God as a woman. How about that? Or what about this? There was a Jewish rabbi just a couple of years ago in August of 2016. He actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times where he suggested that God's gender is fluid. That is, that it, that it just kind of changes. And so as a result, we then need to be more open and receptive to transgender identities. Well, what do we say about that? What do we do in a society that is attempting to just kind of blur gender lines? Well, what we want to do, as always, is we just want to go to the Word. We just want to go to the Bible. And what does the Word of God say about this particular question, this particular issue, as it pertains to God's gender? Well, what I want to say emphatically this evening, and I want to say it right out of John 4, verse 24, hold your hats, God doesn't have a gender. You understand that? Gender has to do with biology. It has to do with your physical body. God doesn't have that. God doesn't have a physical body. God doesn't have physical biology like we do. God is, John 4 verse 24, God is spirit. God is a spirit being. His makeup, His composition, it is completely different than ours. In fact, in many ways, we can't even fully grasp the idea of a spirit being. And so for someone to ask a question like, what gender is God? That really is about the same as asking... What color is God's hair? Or how much does God weigh? Those kinds of questions, they don't apply to God. God doesn't have physical measurements. God doesn't have physical attributes like hair or size or even gender. And I know somebody is liable to say, somebody would maybe want to answer this question, what gender is God? Somebody would probably just want to jump immediately to Jesus. And somebody would say, hey Josh, don't you know... Jesus came to this earth. And when Jesus came to this earth, He came as a man. He was a male. And yes, I understand that. I get that. But you know, the fact that Jesus' human incarnation was as a man, that really doesn't have anything to do with God the Father in heaven, in the spiritual realm. That's almost like trying to prove that God is Jewish, because when Jesus came to earth, He was a Jew. Well, that's, that's a bad comparison. It's comparing apples and oranges there. It didn't prove anything. And I guess really what I'm trying to say right here is that when it comes to assigning a gender to God, we want to be very, very careful 
about how we answer that question if we're having a conversation about this with somebody. Because the Bible does contain a number of references to God. Like, for example, the fact that God has hands. Second Chronicles chapter 30, amongst other places, talks about how God's hand did this and God's hand did that. Or what about in Job chapter 4? It talks there about the, the breath of God. Listen, those are not references to God having literal fingers. He has hands, so He has literal fingers that are able to play the piano and do that kind of stuff. No. And the reference to God having breath, that does not mean that God has physical lungs and that He's able to respirate and do those kinds of things like our physical bodies does. No. Those are figures of speech that are given to us so that we can relate and we can better understand the Lord. What we need to be making sure we don't do is we don't ever want to take those metaphors and be overly literal with them and as a result we turn God into a human being like us. God is not a human being. God is not a man. God is not a woman. God is not a boy. God is not a girl. God, according to John 4.24, is a spirit being. In fact, Mormonism really makes this very mistake that I'm trying to caution us against. Uh, The Mormons make the mistake of being overly literal with the Bible's descriptions about the Lord. Mormonism teaches that God is an exalted man. And He came from another world and He has a literal goddess as His wife. And that, of course, is just completely false. And it is utterly without scriptural support. God is spirit. Now, having said that, if you'll just stay right here in this very same passage in John 4 verse 24, you will notice that Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship Him. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus utilizes male pronouns in addressing or describing God. And I'm going to suggest to you that actually when you kind of take the whole of Scripture, that is the pattern all throughout. Jesus referred to God as He or Him, not she or her. Or Jesus doesn't even refer to God as it. Jesus addressed God as Father, such as we could notice actually in the verse right on top of it. Look in verse 23 of this very same chapter. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the... Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Jesus does not call God His mother. He does not call God His sister. He calls God His Father. In fact, Jesus does that more than 150 times throughout the Gospels. And then the apostles and the other New Testament writers, they do it another 70 times in the New Testament. And so while our world out here, they're all yammering about, about how we need to be more gender inclusive, Jesus and the apostles, they didn't seem to get that memo. But I'm here to tell you, I'm okay with that. Because if Jesus addressed God as Him, as He, as Father, then I'm simply content to just do what Jesus did. Now, are there other metaphors for the Lord that we find in Scripture? Absolutely, there are. I think about in Isaiah 49, verse 15. In fact, you may even get this if you're talking to somebody about what gender is God. Somebody's going to throw out Isaiah 49, verse 15, where there's a comparison made there between God and the kind of love that a mother has 
for her nursing child. Now, that's using a very feminine metaphor. It's not just a woman, but it's also a mother there. But that doesn't mean that we're now going to, okay, well, there's a verse in Isaiah that compares God to a mother, so now we're going to start addressing God as our mother in heaven. Absolutely not. There's lots of metaphors that are used to describe God throughout the Bible. In Hosea chapter 14 and in verse 8, God describes Himself there as a tree. Did you know that? Well, I tell you what, I guess we better just get out all of those male pronouns or any other kind of human pronouns, get all of that out of the Bible, and we need to just use tree language when we talk about the Lord. We need to just exalt and appreciate the, the treeness of God. No! That's ridiculous. That's insane. In fact, if we did that, it would just be confusing. We don't want to ever make more out of a metaphor than the Scripture does. If you want to talk about God, in fact, if you want to talk to God, and if you want to be clear in what you are saying, then how about we just use the language that Jesus used? How about we use the dominant pronoun that is found all throughout the Scriptures, not just in a couple of places here or there, or maybe a couple of times over here in the Psalms, there's an interesting kind of metaphor, or maybe here's a verse over here in the prophets that references God in a feminine sort of way. How about instead... We refer to God in the way that Scripture almost uniformly refers to God as over and over and over again. He is our God. Worship Him, our Father in heaven. And so while we need to be careful and we need to remember that God does not have gender because God doesn't have physical biology like we do, God is addressed, however, and God is described all throughout the Bible using male pronouns. And if you've got a problem with that, I want you to just remember, that's the way God chose to do it. God could have chose to do that any number of ways. But that's how He chose to do it. That's how He chose when He sent His Son to this world. That's how He chose for His Son to describe Him. When God was guiding the Holy Spirit and having the Bible written, that's how that was chosen to be written down. You take that up with the Lord. But at the end of the day, what we're going to need to do, it's going to need to respect that designation God is referenced in this way. I hope that helps us to think more accurately about the Lord, and maybe we can even help some others, especially in a day and time where confusion just abounds about these sort of things. Let's turn our attention now to this second question about God, and I need to do that from John the ninth chapter. If you're still in John, just jump over a couple of pages. This is a question uh, about prayer, but really it's more so about how God responds to prayer. And I think we might be able to develop some ideas that will help and really encourage all of us as we think about our relationship to the Lord. In John chapter 9, you might remember, this is the account of Jesus healing a man who had been blind from birth. And upon being healed, it's an amazing thing that happens and people are marveling and just just so awestruck by that. Unfortunately, not everybody marveled at that. The Pharisees and all those people who disbelieved, now they had a problem with it. And so they end up confronting this guy who had been healed. And in fact, they kind of begin to interrogate the fella. And so pick that conversation up in John chapter 9, begin there in verse 28. It says there that they reviled him and they said... You are His disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, pointing to Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered, Well, this is an amazing thing that has happened. 
You do not know where He comes from, and yet He opened my eyes. We know, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Focus in on that 31st verse there. Clearly this guy, as he's talking there and answering the Pharisees, he's not trying to develop a complete theology of prayer. But along the way, he does make the statement, God does not hear sinners. What about that? It causes a lot of people trouble, and in fact that gives rise to this second question. And that is, if God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners, then what about Christians who sin? This is the question in its entirety. It was way too much to put on the screen. This is as it was submitted to me. The person said, I have often been troubled by John 9 verse 31 as it conveys to me that God does not hear sinners, rather only those who worship Him and do His will. But sometimes I don't do His will. Sometimes I sin. I know that God acknowledged that Cornelius was praying in Acts the 10th chapter, but was he hearing his prayer? If there is a sin that I struggle with and struggle with perpetually, does God actually hear my prayers? It's just a struggle for me to know whether he hears and answers or if my prayers come up before him as an abomination. I really appreciate the candidness of the questioner, and I do believe that this is a really important question. Because it drives and it gets at our relationship with the Lord. And so this is really kind of critical stuff that we're talking about here. I'd like to just kind of break it down piece by piece, if you will. And I'm going to start by trying to clear up something that I think just a lot of people maybe just kind of have some misconception about. Or maybe they just haven't thought this through when they read a verse like that and they say, well, God does not hear sinners. Well, first and foremost, let's be clear. God hears Everything. We need to be very careful when we just spout off lines like that and we suggest God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners and it comes off as if we're saying that just categorically without any explanation at all because pretty quickly what's going to happen is is we're going to start contradicting Scripture if we're not careful there. God absolutely hears all. Let's just get a verse or two to confirm that. Look in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, This is one place here in the New Testament that makes this point. In 1 John chapter 3, this is verse number 20. In 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 20, John says there, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart because He knows everything. God knows everything. That means that everything that is said or everything that is done... God knows about it. God hears it. God sees it. There's not anything that somehow you know escapes God's sight or God's ears. There's not anything that God is not aware of that happens. I think of passages in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms, in Psalm 139. That's a chapter that just praises the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere and He knows everything. And that is absolutely true. God sees all and God hears all. What that means is, is that means if there, if there is a sinner down here on earth and he's uttering a prayer, God is not sitting up in heaven watching that man move his lips saying, I wish I could make out what he's saying. 
I see him, but I just can't hear him. Can't hear what that guy said. Man, I wish I could hear his prayer. No, that's not the case there. God is aware of everything. So we need to be careful with just kind of throwing lines out there about how God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners because that could be very, very misleading. Because there is this sense in which God hears everything. It also needs to be said, though, that God is under no obligation to respond to the prayers of people who don't love Him, who don't want to obey Him, and who don't want to do what's right. In fact, that really seems to maybe be the meaning that the guy in John 9.31, that that's probably what he's driving at there. And that's not even the only place. Sometimes folks will point out about the guy in John 9.31. They might say, well, that guy's not an inspired person. I mean, he, he said that, and the Bible accurately records what he said, but that doesn't make it necessarily true. And that's right, but there are other places where the Bible seems to make this very point. Look, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, here's a place where Peter just says flat out, that God's face is set against the wicked. In 1 Peter chapter 3, this is verse number 12. Peter's quoting here from the Old Testament. In 1 Peter 3 verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Notice the contrast now. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are a number of passages that echo this point. In fact, let me grab one from the Psalms. Would you find Psalm 66? In Psalm 66, this is verse 18. Notice what the psalmist says here, the recognition that he had. In Psalm 66, I'm reading here in verse 18. Psalm 66, verse 18. The psalmist said, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, that is, if I had been this person who just loves sin, and he goes on to say, then the Lord would not have listened. The Lord would not have paid attention to me if I'm over here just living and loving sin. And there are lots of passages that affirm that idea that the wicked should have no expectation that they can call on God and that they then ought to expect that God's going to answer. Now, of course, point number one, God hears them. God hears that they're praying. He is aware of their prayers. But this in many ways is kind of like a parent who tells their child, Hey, I can't hear you when you're whining. You ever hear that maybe growing up? Or maybe you've said that to your kids before? When a parent says that to a child, I can't hear you when you're whining, what does that parent mean? Do they mean, oh, my my auditory canal, it's not functioning at the moment and the sounds are... That's not what they mean, is it? They hear it, but what that parent is saying is they're saying, I'm not going to respond to you when you're in that whiny mode. And in a similar way, the Bible says that God is not obligated to respond to somebody who's not even trying to serve Him somebody who doesn't even really care about Him, somebody who's not in a covenant relationship with Him, somebody who's maybe just kind of trying to use God as a a fire insurance policy. Oh Lord, I'm in trouble. Bail me out, please. No. God's not obligated to respond to that. Now, having made those first two points there, you better be careful in saying that God doesn't hear and God doesn't respond to the prayers of sinners because thirdly, God has heard. And God has responded to the prayers of sinners. There are examples of that in the Bible. God gets to be God. Which means that God is going to do what God wants to do. Think about, for example, in the Old Testament, think about Nineveh. 
What a exceedingly wicked city that was. The people of that city, exceedingly wicked. Just thorns in the side of Israel for so long. And yet Jonah comes to them. And he preaches to the people there. And what do they do? These people cry out to God. Their king tells them, we need to be crying out mightily to God. Jonah chapter 3, and guess what happens? God answers that prayer. He relents from that disaster. Or what about in the New Testament? What about what I think is the consummate example here? What about Cornelius? Look at Acts chapter 10. Let's just notice that. In Acts chapter 10, this actually was referenced in the the questioner's uh, question and in the thoughts that were presented. In Acts chapter 10, notice what's said about Cornelius. This is a guy who's, at this point, at the beginning of the chapter, he's not a Christian. There's no doubt about that. He is not a Christian. Acts 10 verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. Look at there. He prayed to God. Now, the questioner seemed to point out that, well, okay, God acknowledged that prayer. And in fact, you read down to verse 4, that's the acknowledgement. God acknowledged this prayer. But the questioner wanted to know, was God actually hearing that prayer? Was God hearing so that He could respond to that prayer? And the answer to that is, yes! I know this because you keep on reading. Drop down to verse 31. Verse 31, Peter said to him, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. i got to tell you, I don't see any way around that. I don't see how anybody's going to go around and say, well, you know what, God didn't hear the prayers of Cornelius. Yeah, he, he acknowledged it and he knew that it happened, but he didn't really hear that guy's prayers. Because through an inspired apostle... Peter said to him, the Lord has heard your prayers, and in fact, the Lord is responding to your prayers. Truth is, there's just not any passage in the Bible that you can go to and you can make it into some kind of a ironclad, categorical, God is never ever going to respond to a sinner sort of doctrine. God can do whatever God wants to do. God has heard the prayers of sinners in Bible times, Old Testament times, New Testament times. God may very well hear the prayers of sinners even today. And especially, you think about Cornelius here. This is a guy who's crying out to God for salvation, for wanting to know what's the right thing to do. This guy's the kind of guy who would have been praying, send me a preacher so that I can know what your will is, Lord. Help me to do what's right. I want to know what's right. I want to be in a right relationship with you. You think God's going to ignore or say no to a sincere prayer like that? Absolutely not. God's all over those kinds of prayers because that's what God's all about. God's all about seeking and saving the lost. And thinking about who it is that God is going to respond to in prayer, I've used this illustration before in talking with others, and I've used it really to kind of kind of try to keep things straight in in my own mind. In our neighborhood where we live, there's several families and folks that have kids. If a neighbor kid comes and knocks on my door and he says, Mr. McKibben, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat, please. I may give that child some food simply out of the compassion and the goodwill and the kindness of my heart. But I am not obligated 
to feed that child. That's not my child. That's somebody else's child. In fact, after about the seventh time of that kid coming back and knocking on my door asking for food, eventually I'm going to say, kid, go to your own house. Have your mama and daddy feed you. I'm not going to feed you anymore. On the other hand, if my child comes to me and she says, Daddy, I'm hungry. I'm going to feed my child. And why? Because we're in a relationship. I am her father. She is my child. And I think that that illustration really kind of helps to help us to think biblically about who it is that God responds to in prayer. God may choose to respond to someone who is not His child. He may choose to do that. But it is only God's children who have the promise, have the assurance, they can have the confidence that God has heard my prayers and God is going to answer my prayers. In fact, that is one of the great blessings that we have in being Christians, isn't it? Lots of blessings that we have as Christians, and that is one of them. The assurance that we have in prayer. Which brings me now, really, to, I guess, the main thrust of this question. And that is, well, well, what about a Christian? What about a Christian who sins? And now this Christian is concerned that his or her prayers are being hindered because according to John 9.31, God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. Well, I think the key here is that we need to reevaluate that word sinner. What is a sinner according to the Bible? Now, I know how we sometimes use that term. I know how I use it from time to time. From time to time, you'll hear me say, even from the pulpit, I'll say that we are all sinners. And what do I mean by that? I mean that all of us have sinned. If you commit even just one sin, then in that strict technical definition, that makes you a sinner. And I understand about that, and I trust that when I use it in that way, that you understand what I mean by that. But in the Bible, it needs to be said. In the Bible, that word sinner, that's not how it's used. In the Bible, the term sinner is used to describe people who are in active rebellion against God. These are the people who do not want to live for God. These are people who not even not even making the slightest attempt to obey God. That is how, almost without exception, that that term is used in Scripture. Let me give you some passages to show that. Look in the book of Jude, please. In the tiny book of Jude, Jude chapter 1, notice there in verse 15. In Jude 1 and in verse 15, there he talks about how the Lord is going to come. Jude 1 verse 15. And He is going to execute judgment on all and to convict who? He is going to convict all of the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. That, that is how sinner is used in the Bible. Talking about people who are ungodly. They're not thinking about the Lord. These are people who maybe even hate and rebel against God intentionally. In fact, I'll show you that again. Just turn back a couple of pages. Look in First Peter now. In First Peter chapter 4, this is verse 18. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18, Peter says there, he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Who's the sinner there? The sinner there is not a Christian who has committed one infraction. Here I was living right and 
I got tripped up along the way and I committed this one sin, did this one wrong thing, made this one wrong step. That's not the person being described here. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that it's okay to take one small wrong step or to do one wrong infraction or to commit even one sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that biblically that term sinner, it is reserved for those who are just out and out ungodly. This is the person who, they don't care about their walk. I tripped 15 times and sinned. I don't care about that. We'll see that again. Look in the Psalms in Psalm 1. In Psalm chapter 1, here is a startling contrast. And in fact, really, this, these first two verses in Psalm 1 set the tone for the whole rest of the book of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 1, look in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Look at that word sinner in verse 1. That is not a Christian who's really, really trying to serve God. Really, really trying to live according to His Word. A person who's trying to, to, to worship God exactly the way that He wants to please Him. This is not a person who's trying to do what's right, but then occasionally falls short. No. This is the person who just doesn't care about the Lord. In fact, did you know that in the Bible, that even when a Christian does sin, even when a Christian is involved in maybe even some repetitive sin, that he is still called a brother? Look in 2 Thessalonians 3. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, here is a description of a Christian who is in sin, so much so that he actually has been disciplined by the church. In 2 Thessalonians 3, notice how he is to be regarded. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm looking at verse 14. Paul says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15 now. Do not regard him as an enemy. Instead, warn him as a brother. Paul does not say, now I tell you what, that guy's an out and out sinner now. And you need to treat him as this terrible sinner who doesn't care about God. No, he's a brother. There's still relationship there. And what I want to say to you this evening, maybe just as emphatically as I can, in answer to, to that question and that concern, is that the prayer of a sincere brother, the prayer of a sincere sister, the prayer of a sincere Christian who is trying to do what's right, who's trying to worship God, who's trying to live for Him, the prayer of a Christian who's reaching out to God for forgiveness because they recognize the error of their way. They recognize that there's some, some holes in their walk with God. The person who's asking God for strength to overcome that and to do what's right, that prayer, that prayer is never an abomination to God. And I believe the fact, if that does describe you, if you're that kind of person, if you're the person that asked this question, I believe the fact that you would just be concerned about this, the fact that you are sensitive to sin in your own life, even just one sin in your life, I think that's a pretty good description that the sinner that's being described in John 9 verse 31, that's probably not you. That's probably not describing who you are. I'm not trying to advocate or say that Christians are perfect, that we are sinless, that somehow we are better than everybody else. But you know what? We are not 
like the scoffers of this world. We are not like those who are militant against God and against His Word. We are not like those who live in outright rebellion to the will of God. We are God's children. And He is our Father. And He longs to hear from us. When there are things on our heart, things that are weighing heavy upon us, when there are things that are burdening us, God wants to hear from us. And He longs to help us and He longs to forgive us. Which means that since that's not where we are, where we need to see ourselves is Romans chapter 8. One final passage this evening. In Romans chapter 8, this is where we need to get to. And this is the conviction that we need to have. In Romans chapter 8, in verses 31 and 32, there Paul says this, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Trying to figure out where you fit this evening in this equation. I believe that if you are a child of God, and you are seeking to do the will of God, but occasionally we do stumble and we do fall short, that is true of all of us, that is true of humanity, then this is where we are. God is fighting for us. And He wants to hear your prayers. And He longs to forgive you. And He longs to welcome you one day into His eternal abode. I hope that these ideas, these particular thoughts, I hope they'll help not just the person who maybe was specifically concerned about this, but I hope it helps all of us to have confidence when we approach the Lord and when we seek Him in prayer. Now, as we extend the invitation of the Lord, it maybe is worth just kind of stopping for a second. And let's think about that word sinner there. I said that if you are a Christian, you're seeking to do God's will, but occasionally you fall short, then you're not really the Bible definition of a sinner. But it may be that we have people in attendance this evening who maybe that does describe you. You've been living your life maybe all the way up until this point and just... Flat out rebellion to God. Just haven't really been concerned with obeying Him and following His will, doing the things that the Bible says to do in order for a person to be saved. You have the opportunity tonight to change all of that. You can trade in that wretched and awful title of sinner. You can get a brand new title. Son or daughter. Child of God. And when you do that, then you're going to get to know the great blessings that those of us who are in the family of God, you're going to get to know and experience what we already know. That is that God does hear our prayers. God loves us and He wants to hear from us, and you can know that as well, in addition to all of the other great spiritual blessings that come in Christ Jesus. If you've never responded to the call of the gospel, confess your faith in Jesus as Lord, been baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, all things are ready for that to happen tonight. We'd be happy to help you, be excited to help you in that. Brother or sister, it may very well be that you are that individual who's you're away from God. You're maybe the kind of person that was described there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are admonishing you right now as a brother or as a sister. Come back. Let's pray to the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord together. He will hear our prayers. He wants to forgive. He wants to help us to do better from this point on. Whatever your need might be. Won't you take advantage of this opportunity in this moment right now to get right with God. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.